Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Shuman Katoshu Daini Ju Issok Umman Soro Umman Shunishite Iwak Hechijoni Shinin Muzu Entangling Vines Case 21 Unmon's Sulu. Unmon Bunen addressed the assembly, saying, The level plain is strewn with corpses. Only those who pass through the thorn forest are true adepts. At that moment, a monk stepped forth and said, If that's the case, then the head monk of the hall has true skill. Suru, suru, said Unman. four of our harvest session. I wonder if you have met silence in the meanwhile. Silence might have found you. The process of cultivating this silence is quite remarkable. Because at some point, the silence sneaks into everything. At times, our thinking self goes to sleep, and that kind of silence appears. After our moosh out, silence appears. in the chatter of the geese this morning. And yesterday, those who were sitting out on the platform during the yoga sit, they saw silence manifest as the dark red sunlight hitting the top of the mountain as if it were glowing on fire. Just so long. Never to be seen again. The only thing that we see again today is Uman. So we talked about Uman a lot yesterday already. Uh, but today he returns in this case, in case number 21 of this Shumon Katoshu. Shumon, the gate of this tradition, of this. Sometimes it's translated as sect, S-E-C-T, the Rinzai tradition. Shumon, Katoshu, the entangling vines. So there is this concept of barriers, of vines that entangle us. And it's meant in a very literal context here in terms of the vines of words, of concepts, of 
cases from the olden times that are made up of words that recount some kind of interaction, a question and an answer, or some kind of happening. But of course, we all know the vines that we notice when we do zazen, when we learn to follow our breath at times, we start to expand and contract more than we had before. And sometimes that expansion can feel those vines that have grown around that identity that we carry around with ourselves, that belief system or the culture in which we have been brought up and of course which has completely permeated who we are, how we see this world, and also what some of these cultural limitations are. But feeling them, learning how to feel them, is always the first step. Entangling vines. Sometimes they get so tight and all we can hope for is that that ego, that self, will pass out. And we have some kind of moment of stillness, of silence from it. So entangling vines. Why do I tell you about entangling vines? Because this case speaks about something that is similar, you know? The thorn forest yet another kind of natural barrier that is used in this context. And we can look at it like we can look at koans in so, so many different ways. There is no right way to interpret a koan because every interpretation is based upon the conditions of the person who's looking at it. And as long as we don't attach to it, it's perfectly okay. If you were a sinologist studying this time and this language, I'm sure there are educated answers that might be fairly accurate. But that's not the point of koans. That's not the point of koans. I remember the story that uh, there was this Japanese Rinzai monk, uh, Takabayashi Genki. I think he appears in our dedication in the Daisekaki, Takabayashi Genki, who also came to study with Joshu Roshi a little bit. And they got to talk, that was, I think, probably in the early 80s or late 70s, and Joshua Roshi said to Genki, it's so strange. My students, when I give them the traditional koans lately, they come all back with these weird answers. I don't know why it suddenly started. And Genki started laughing because he knew why. There was a book published the sound of one hand, answers to 150 koans <laughs> as transmitted in this and this tradition. And it's true, there are such compilations that make it from one generation of monks to the next. But of course, taking the answer from there is something completely different in that system where you have all the background with the poetics where you have all of that in addition to having to grasp or having grasped the central point of a koan. And as it turns out, if we just read it and then reenact it, it's not going to work. And that's not only true in the encounter where you have to present your understanding in the context of Doksan, it's in life the same. 
same thing. Canned answers will not satisfy those, those people who actually can detect what can it came from. So whatever, we are not trying to answer this koan. We're trying to look at this koan as an example of what we can see here that can help us and inspire us to look deeper into our own nature of self, into our own existence, using these wonderful pointers and words that are very, very old. Remember, Umon Bunang lived in the ninth century. That's just about a thousand years ago. That's a long time. Now, of course, as soon as you start to, to work on koans or read about them, you will see that Umon Bunen is actually one of the masters who appears very, very often. Umon is appearing very often. Do you have any other name that comes to mind who appears often? Yeah, Joshu, Joshu Jushin, for example. He and Umon, I think they're pretty much the top two of the Koan hit list. Umon alone has eight koans in the Hegigandroku, the Blue Cliff record. There are eight of his sayings in the Shoyoroku, the Book of Equanimity. The Mumonkan, the Gateless Gate, has five. And the Shumonkatoshu has a total of 25. That's a lot. And they are most of most of them are as short as the one we looked at yesterday and as short as the one we are looking upon today. Let's remember Umon's approach to teaching. It was very straightforward. No hesitation. Guts, not brain. And sometimes Umon addressed the assembly directly. It's not in this case, but in other cases, he puts out a question, and then before anyone has a chance, he answers himself. That might be quite frustrating for the monks, especially those who think, I have something to say. In this case, Umon Bunen addresses the assembly and says, the level plane is strewn with corpses. What is the level plane? Was it that from Mount Umon he could see down into the flatlands where the various warring factions had battles and where there were dead corpses? Probably not. But I'm sure that Umon has seen his share of corpses because China was quite uh, full of wars at that time. So what else could it mean? What is plain, the, the plane that is just with a flat face? This is a key word, flat face. A flat-faced place. Joshua Roshi used to call it Hey Man Joe. Flat-faced place. A two-dimensional place. Can you imagine any two-dimensional places? Just imagining anything is two-dimensional if we use our discursive mind. So the level plane that is that way of life where we are completely absorbed in the functioning of that two-dimensional thinking. 
always referring to I. I like. I don't like. I need. I want. I am afraid of. My past. My future. All of it. I saw a cartoon recently. It was a cartoon of an astronomer teaching an, an astronomy class to college students standing in front of the blackboard and pointing at something. Yeah. And it said, first we discovered matter. There is all kind of matter in the universe. Then we found about dark matter. There's a lot of dark matter in the universe. And the latest thing that we found was don't matter. And it has absolutely no influence on the universe. And I looked at that cartoon and I thought, wow. It sounded funny at first. But then I realized it's actually quite the opposite. A lot of the things that we find here in society, especially, or in our lives, are areas that we treat with indifference. Doesn't matter. If you want to say it that way, you could say elections are won and lost by the amount of indifference that you find in people towards the process. Isn't it a shame that this country that calls itself the cradle of democracy has so low voter turnout? I was told that in this county here, elections, and there was one just recently, one of the residents went during Sishin and voted. And the turnout that was expected was less than 20 people. It's true, if we all went to vote, we could take over this place. <laughs> and that's a quote from that resident. Isn't it, Karen? <laughs> Not that we have any intention to do that, but it shows the staggering amount of disconnect from things that actually matter. We have to look at our own lives in the same way. What are we indifferent to? Because we don't just, we have three buckets from the point of view of the ego. Affirms me. Yeah. Give, give me more. Negates me. I don't want to deal with that. Less, less, less. And in between this, there's a vast amount of, I don't care. And even that I don't care has, or especially the I don't care, has this immense influence on the universe, including ourselves. So this flatland here, that's our two-dimensional mind and at times the way we have to live, we, we cannot escape it. Society exists on that level plane. Where all the thinking is the same. This and that. And it manifests in all different kinds of ways, as you know. It's called discriminating thinking for a reason. There's certainly no level playing field for any of us or anyone in the world because there are all these judgments, buildings, ideas that might be positive or might be hatred, 
misogyny, whatever you can think of that also play out on that plane. But let's not talk about that today. What Umon says about it is that that level plane, it's just like somebody sprinkled corpses on there. Why corpses? A corpse is, the, the characters is she for shinu dai, death, and hito, nin, shinin, dead humans. Have you ever had that feeling that you found yourself feel like a zombie living on that two-dimensional plane? No, not yet. And if not yet, wait until you go back from here. You will meet the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> it's right there, and we will notice it. And then, as we go back to a society like that, at times, we ourselves start to decompose. That's one way to look at it. Living just on that level for a human being is like living not at all, being dead. How many dead hearts are out there that have bodies around them? How many dead brains are out there? in this cacistocracy we live in. Have you heard that word before? Cacistocracy? A cacistocracy is a government by the worst. <laughs> it's a wonderful word. I hope we can forget about it pretty soon. But cacistocracy reminds me of the, 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 the dry piece of shit, you know? So living on that level plane, just corpses. And then Umon says, only those who pass through the thorn forests are true adepts. What is an adept? We have heard that word. Subuti, subuti. What, what is an adept? Does anyone know what an adept is? That's when they are adept. <laughs> but isn't it the noun then? I think it's a different thing. In the Diamond Sutra, it says it's a specific already progression in the study of the Dharma. When you're an adept, you have just one time you will be reborn. That's how it's translated. Did we all sleep during the Diamond Sutra? No. I think it's something like that. It's a specific type of a very serious disciple. So only those who pass through the thorn forest are true disciples of this way of life. Now, of course, Umon represents the Zen school. If you want to be a Zen student, you have to pass through the thorn forest to be a true Zen practitioner. If you just live on that plane filled with your fellow zombies, you can, you can call yourself a Zen practitioner, yes. But it won't be the substance of it. There's a completely other interpretation from inside the school, because inside the school, and I, to a certain degree, I would say I do not particularly like it. Because, you know, when the Soto school developed in the beginning, the school after Rinzai and Umon was at the same time, so these more active, action-oriented schools, they looked at the sitting that shikantaza, nothing but sitting, that you find in the Soto tradition as mokusho zen, silent illumination zen. 
no screaming, no pieces of shit, nothing. If it is just that, I agree. It's like being dead. It's wonderful to be in samadhi and be able to manifest the zazen posture as the manifestation of being a Buddha. But just understanding it that way would be too shallow, even though the samadhi is deep. A transformation has to happen so that what happens there is not an escape, but it is the core that informs the rest of our lives. That's what it's meant. But here, it, is, it, it could be interpreted as really derogatory. Shingyoroshi says people who sit just like that, they are stone Buddhas. Stone Buddhas. Nobody wants to be a stone Buddha. Only those who pass through the thorn forest, the thorn forest, full of entangling vines, going through the training with, of course, an employee of our franchise. We can guarantee you, your skin will rip, your legs will hurt, and you won't be a corpse. Well, <laughs> you'll feel like one, but... So that is one interpretation here, that it could be seen as a stab at the Mokusho Zen. Daie Soko, who is another master in that time, a little later, continuously takes stabs at that Mokusho Zen. But it could be in the Rinzai tradition as well. And there's absolutely nothing that one should generalize and franchise the practice of Zen. This is the flavor we are doing, Daipusatsu, Zen. Even we could break it down more, your Zen. And that's ultimately what counts. So by no means would I like to put this forth as a put down on any other tradition of Zen practice. But now, if then the thorn forest is not the koan practice and the skillful means that we encounter in Ummon school or in the school of Linzai Gigen, what else could it be? For that, I want to tell you a story. And I would say the story is about the thorn forest. And it is taken from the Pali Canon. So this is a very old Buddhist story. And the title that I gave it is How Rupwati Became Patakara. So Rupwati was the beautiful daughter of a very wealthy merchant in the city of Savati in the Kosala kingdom in ancient India. Her given name was Rupwati, which means beauty because she was the most beautiful girl grew up to be the most beautiful woman in town. Of course, her parents were quite protective of her. She had a brother, but she was the only girl, and they protected her. They provided to her whatever she needed, whatever she wanted whatever the luxury item of that time was. But having overbearing parents, as some of us can relate to, has effects on how the children feel, how one feels as a child. 
and deep inside herself, Rupvati was not happy. She was lonely. It's very lonely to be the most anything, the most beautiful person, the smartest person, the most loved person, whatever. Being at the top, at the apex of whatever it is, is a lonely place. And so Rupati was lonely. And also her parents restricted her from going out into the town. You go out in town, the boys will just look at you. They will whistle after you. You, I don't want to expose my daughter to that. So everything was done for her in the household. And even servants were there just to help Lupvati. And as it goes in nature, as she grew up and became a beautiful young woman, she started to fall in love and become physically attracted to a young male servant who was in the house, who the parents had hired, also good-looking, and also very nice and innocent young man coming from a lower social class. That's why he was a servant to the household. The name of him doesn't really matter, but this story we know all happens quite often. The young man did not really develop any feelings of attraction to her, though. Yet once, when the parents gave permission for her to take a walk in the local forest. They sent him with her to protect her. And having gotten out of the house in the forest, it was spring, the flowers were blooming, the birds were singing, and Rupvati used her beauty and seduced the young man. Yet at the same time, her parents were already lining up the son of another wealthy merchant as her husband. She didn't like it. Besides that, from her encounter in the forest, she already was bearing the child of the servant. She couldn't tell the parents, even she couldn't do it. She still had the feelings for her parents. They have provided for me for so long and they have given me everything that I ever wanted. I cannot do this to them. Let me elope with my lover and move far away to where he came from. And my parents will not know. I will spare them. So they eloped and went to a very, very far away village living in a very simple hut, none of the luxuries anymore. And they were happy for some time while she was pregnant. Of course, the parents were seeking after her. Where has Rupvati gone? And eventually they found out, and of course, they were not happy about it. As it came to the time for Rupvati to give birth to the child that they had conceived, she looked around in that farmer's hut and felt, I cannot give birth to my child here. I will ask my husband to go back with me to my parents 
so we can give birth to their great, to their grandkid in the proper circumstances with the clean linens, with hot water and enough food for the kid. And she tried to talk him into coming and going with her, but he said, I can't go with you. We can't go. First of all, they are mad at you and they would terribly abuse me because I'm from a lower class. Let's stay just here. And following her pattern, of course, Rupati snuck out at night to go back to her parents' house. In the morning, the husband woke up. Where is my wife? And he followed her. And he found her before she had gone too far. He could not talk her into coming back. But as it turns out, just at that time, the baby was born. There was a boy and there was no more need to go to the parents' house. They went back and resumed their life. Now the unhappiness with the circumstances with the child got dimmer and the love of the two made them continue to live that way. And where there is one kid, of course, eventually comes the second. This time, said Rupvati, this time I will, I will have to go back and you will have to come with me. And by that time, the husband had softened enough that he would see that the needs of his children were more important than his personal needs and he would go with her. They went to go back to the city of Savati. Yet on the way, there was a big storm. It started raining very unseasonably. Hard thunder and lightning and wind. And to help shelter his family from the rain, the husband went to the forest and cut leaves and saplings and made a little hut. And just as he went back to cut yet another leaf to make it perfect, he stuck his hand into the bush and a snake came out and bit him. A venomous snake. It bit him right in a place that the venom went straight into his system and a few steps away, he collapsed and died. Where is my husband? Rupvati went to look for him. And he found, she found him the next morning, stiff in rigor mortis. Very distraught, she blamed herself for his death. But I have to go home now more than ever. So she continued on her journey to Savati. And she had to cross a river. The storm just had moved out and all the water from the rain has made the river that usually was very easy to cross. Maybe you got knee deep into it, but with the massive rain, it was a raging river. And she had learned a lesson from, I have to be more careful with my family. I can't, I lost my husband already. I cannot carry both my children over. Now I broke the story, but that's okay. Because just before that, on the, after the husband died, the second child was born. 
she was so distraught that she had this little tiny baby just right there before she came to the river. So she was carrying the newborn and the other kid on the back. How can I bring both of these kids over? I have to wade through this river up to my chest in the water. I can't do that. So she decided to leave the older son on this side and to bring the baby over, holding it over the water. And she made it to the other side where she carefully put the kid down and went back to fetch the other one. As she's getting into the middle of the river where it's really strong, she looks back how the little one is, and as she looks back, she sees this big bird of prey circling way too close to that infant for comfort of a mother. I have to scare that bird off. And she starts shouting and waving her arms for the bird to notice her and not the kid. But the bird just swoops down, takes the newborn and carries it off. As she turns around, crying about yet another loss, completely out of her mind, she sees the other kid wading into the river because he had stood on the other side and saw his mother shouting and moving her arms. Oh yeah, she wants me to come to her. And he waded into the river and the big swall of water took him away too. Rupati's mind, you cannot imagine in what kind of agony she was. I want to go home. She made it home to the city of Savati which had sustained severe damage from the storm. Houses were washed away and collapsed. And she found ruins of her parents' house where the parents and her brother perished. Out of her mind, in her grief, she started tearing off her clothes, wandering around the city, having nowhere to go, devastated and depressed, full of insanity, howling, wailing about this incredible string of misfortunes. People would taunt her and throw rocks at her, look at her. We shall call her the naked one, Patakara, because nobody remembered who she was, so far away from having been that beautiful woman. All of that made her more aggressive. If a compassionate woman would come and give her clothes and put them on her so she wouldn't have to run around naked. <laughs> she would rip them off. Patakara, the one who is unaware of the importance of proper conduct and of wearing clothes. People hated and abused her day after day. 
and she was completely ostracized. At that time, not far away, in Jetavana, in the grove, in Anathapinda's monastery, visited the Buddha. As by mere chance, running around through Savati, naked and inconsolable, Patankara ran into the Buddha. She happened to fall down at the feet of the Buddha. Looking up, she started to tell him about her fate. The Buddha took her into the Sangha and explained to her the teachings of the nature of impermanence. I'm sure they did some deep zazen as well. But he asked her, what is your name? And of course she was going to say, Rupvati, the beauty of the town. But she noted, I am not beautiful anymore. I am Patankara. She thus became a Sotapana, which is one of the bhikshunis. And from having been completely improper, she turned into somebody keeping the Vinaya very, very strictly. And is, she's used Patankara as an example of, first of all, how important it was for the Buddha also to have female students who are coming to the path from all kinds of backgrounds, but also how her encountering the teachings of Buddhism and of impermanence helped her resolve this incredible experience of life. So this is the end of the story. Can you see the thorn forest that is described here? Anyone with a story that is worse than this here? just thinking or feeling, feeling through this recount of loss. It makes me look at the losses that I sustained in my life and compared to this where Every loss is by some, yes, natural way, but not the way that people die from old age. Everything tragic happens to poor Rupvati. That is the thorn forest she had to go through to be called a true adept. What are the thorn forests that we individually have to go through to call ourselves true practitioners of the way? What are we if we don't face those thorn forests and say, oh, no, that, hmm, that doesn't look so inviting. <laughs> In fact, I can see the thorns and there's some dry blood on it from other people who went through here. Let me turn around. I'll go back to my fellow corpses. Let's hang out with the zombies.
that facing adversity is a topic of human beings in all cultures. And in many cultures, it is said you have to go through the hardships or you have to go through tribulations in order to emerge transformed. Remember today we had the portion in the Diamond Sutra where the Buddha spoke about those who are suffering from the effects of harmful karma currently suffering, how on accord of that they will be able to overcome that. If there is something that we look back to into our past and say this is something that should not have happened to me, we have to get through that. That is one of those portions of the thorn forest. Another portion of that thorn forest is the one where no matter, even if we had a perfect life, wonderful parents, even if we grow up with luxury and everything, well, am I telling the same story again? Things will happen. The thorns will emerge. And eventually, they have to rip all the things, all the clothes off. So that we can take a really, really clear look at the naked matter of being. This is also what we're doing in Seshin. We are going back to the essentials, shedding the adornments of ourselves. I forgot to put my lipstick on. <laughs> Not literally, but all the things that we try or we think we have to do. I want these people to like me. All of that we have to shed. All of these little cover-ups. At times they fall away by themselves. But that glue is very, very strong. So that's the thorn forest through which we have to pass. In the Koran, we continue to say, at that moment, a monk stepped forth and said, if that's the case, then the head monk of the hall has true skill. What's that supposed to mean? <laughs> it could mean, well, I don't like the head monk. What about the dud that's sitting up there in the first seat of the hall? Or it could be full of adoration. If that's the case, there is a real adept. But somehow I feel if we look at it from that point of view, we might as well lean to the corpse to the right or to the left of us, because it is only two-dimensional. Yet to what he says, Ummon answers once again, very succinct. It is written as S-U-L-U, but of course, that is the original Pali or Sanskrit. I think it's Sanskrit, actually, Sulu, Sulu. What does it mean? Mr. Sulu, Warp 2. Is it that Sulu? No. What could that be? Have you encountered some, something here this week 
that reminds you of that. Haza haza. Shifura, shifura. Suru, suru. Dharanis, huh? Dharanis. We chant Dharanis all the time, just here in the opening, in the ancestral part of the service. Daihi en Mombukai Jinshu, the great compassionate Dharani, has lots of these syllables in it, right? Fujiya, Fujiya, Fudoya, Fudoya. During Dai Bosatsu Day service, we did all kinds of Dharanis. Om Kaka Kabisama Esovaka, Om Kaka Kabisama Esovaka, On Kodo Kodo Sendari, Kodo Kodo, Suru Suru, Soro Soro, all of that. The practice of chanting Dharanis is at times seen as magical. Long time ago, there was the teaching, which comes from the Vedic times, the pre-Buddhist times, that sound is manifestation of aspects of reality, of aspects of divinity. Do you happen to know the most divine sound in that system? Come on, let's try that all together. There is something to it. There is something to it that we manifest ourselves through sound. In the chanting, chanting is important part of our practice here. Not in terms of understanding, well, the soro soro, koro koro, suru suru, haza haza, fuji fuji, tora tora makes it easy to think, well, this is gibberish. And that is on purpose. Just look at it as gibberish. But just getting yourself to do it fully with your breath and be with it in the very moment is that exercise that we do as chanting together. At the same time, we keep with the beat that is so generously provided by the Gyorin. At the same time, we keep with the voices of our fellow practitioners that they so generously provide. At the same time, the thorn thicket of the methods of teaching in Zen are at work because we exercise our breath. We elongate our exhalation naturally enchanting. Just by staying with the chant, you don't even have to think about it. Your breath gets very, very long, very long, very long. And then when you have to breathe, the air comes in very quickly and you can continue with the beat, with our fellow chanters. And then we sit down in Zazen and we think, oh, I can't exhale long. Really? Try to find one of the chants, maybe. Moo. Long moo. Om. All of it. as an exercise, manifestation of presence. Quite important. And chanting, 
supposedly also has some beneficial effects. Let me give you a quote published in Nature, which now is a magazine that has been published for 150 years. A scientific report about religious chanting. March 2019. Despite extensive research on various types of meditation, research on the neural correlates of religious chanting is in a nascent stage. Using multimodal electrophysiological and neuroimaging methods, we illustrate that during religious chanting, the posterior cingulate cortex shows the largest decrease in eigenvector centrality, potentially due to regional endogenous generation of delta oscillations. Our data show that these functional effects are not due to the peripheral cardiac or respiratory activity, nor due to implicit language processing. Finally, we suggest that the neurophysiological correlates of religious chanting are likely different from those of meditation and prayer, and would possibly induce distinctive psychotherapeutic effects. Chanting is good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it. It's printed right here. It's printed right here. Chanting is wonderful can opener for the canned up things we have in us. Allow it to happen. This here talks actually, this chanting study they did was about Nen Butsu, where you repeat the same over. What is that different? It's not any different from being with your koan or being with your breath or being with the enme juku kanangyo. Same thing. And allowing that can opener to work, you might find yourself hearing a voice coming out of your throat you have never heard before. And even if everything is fine with us personally, that we don't have to ask Kanan to save us or to do anything, we, as I said before, lend our voices to those beings who don't have a voice. And even that could cause suddenly you becoming aware of something you hadn't been aware before. Chanting also doesn't allow us the time to think. In the Diamond Sutra today, in the Sino-Japanese portion, we were going at a really good clip. No, it was great. It was great because it did not allow to think. The moment a thought comes up, one loses the place. And it happens to all of us. It's like going down the side of a mountain on a mountain bike when the brakes let out. No time to think. If you think, you fall. If you fall, what do you do? Fall completely. Sulu, Sulu, Umon said. It is said that that is a quote from one of the Dharanis that should call forth the demons or the good spirits to get rid of the demons. But to me, now having looked at that koan, this seems, if we think about it that way, to be living on the level plane with the corpses lying around. Just a question 
And the response often is what needs to be shown in koans, often needs what to be looked at. When your name is called, yes, an instant response. When you see something that's wrong, no, no, an instant response. When Umon was asked, he answered, Suru, Suru. And that is case 21. Remember Patankara at times. When we feel sorry for ourselves, let's remember Patankara. When we see a bird of prey, remember Patankara. When you live and find yourself on the level plane in the company of zombies and corpses, Think and feel the draw to the thorny path of this arduous practice of becoming more open, of becoming more caring, of becoming more human, of becoming accepting. becoming more of a human being of loving kindness. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.